Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I knew how to work hard, and that was something I understood. So I feel like in elected office, I can be that voice for people who don't make it the traditional route. The foundation for shared truth in the media has completely collapsed. We can talk about foreign enemies all we want, but the one thing that is going to destroy our country from within is polarization and misinformation. We need to figure out how to have a shared, trusted source of information. And then on these things, we can work together. All right, today we are very, very excited to have a statewide elected official, Labor Commissioner Val Hoyle, former state representative, former uh, majority leader of the Oregon House, and my former boss. Uh, I used to work for Commissioner, uh, Commissioner Hoyle back when she was a state representative and the majority leader. Um, she's from the Lane County area. She tells us in this podcast she has a home on some property outside of Springfield. Um, and she's had a pretty interesting trajectory that brought her to the place that she's in today. She spent a long time in the private sector um, before she transitioned to politics. Um, so she her, this included serving as the board chair of the Federal District Export Council of Oregon. Uh, as well as serving on the Outdoor Industry Women's Coalition and found, helping found the Eugene Chamber of Commerce's International Trade Roundtable. So she's definitely got private sector chops in addition to her public sector chops. Um, she's, she's got an East Coast background, um, but again, has lived in Lane County for a long time, and now she's the labor commissioner. Um, so Alex, what did you think of the, the podcast? It was a fun episode because we covered everything from apprenticeships in Eastern Oregon to uh, big tech and woke politics. So uh, we really went all over the place. And actually, what I thought was interesting is, and she sort of drove the conversation, is that the same topics that came up were almost the exact same as when we had Alex Carlados on. And they're <laughs> like, obviously, well, he's from Roseburg, but I mean, not, you know, I don't know. To me, I just thought that was like, both sort of like in that district uh, and, you know, caring about those issues a lot, obviously from different perspectives, but, uh, but yeah, I thought it was a really, a really unique episode. Uh, and she clearly feels really comfortable diving into what I would say are pretty controversial issues. Like most of the politicians we have on the show, I actually think try to stay away from talking about those sorts of things and get themselves some pickles. But uh, I definitely respected that she was willing to engage, I think pretty openly on, a number of pretty controversial and interesting issues. So 100% agree with that's actually what I was going to say too. It's basically like, I think this is one of our better episodes because um, it's just very natural and real and an honest conversation. And it doesn't at all come across as like talking points or um, not even and like, not that she wasn't being careful with what she said, but she was just like saying what was on her mind and what she thought. Um, and we did talk a lot about national issues, which I thought is important because that's part of the thesis of this podcast and Val is someone she's like she's a very smart political thinker like she was that's why she was so skilled as the majority leader where part of her job was doing elections for house democrats um and that comes across when we're talking about these national issues i think some oregon figures aren't spending much time thinking about national policy national political mm. issues clearly val is so um i thought it was a fascinating conversation that really aligns with our thesis um meaningfully uh so i hope everyone enjoys it titus any final words uh, nope, everyone. Thanks for, for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe uh, if you can on your platform. Uh, definitely check us out on YouTube. Uh, we're putting up some pretty cool videos on there and we'll have some additional content coming shortly. So make sure you subscribe there uh, and feel free to give us five stars if your platform uh, also allows us to do that. But thanks again for tuning in. All right, let's dive into the episode. All right, everybody. Uh, we would like to welcome our special guest, Labor Commissioner Val Hoyle. Val, how are you doing today? Doing great. It looks like uh, it looks like you are not in Portland. It looks like you are home in Springfield. I am, well, I live outside of Springfield um, in the county, but yes, I am in Lane County. I uh, got back after doing a lot of travel. I was back on the East Coast, doing um, dealing with um, so older, sick parent stuff, and uh, then went to Sun River, went to Portland, got home last night. So I'm very happy to be joining you from just outside of Springfield, Oregon. That's awesome. Now, I, I've got to ask because uh, I went to school well, in Eugene, of course, with Ben. Is allergy season over in Springfield and Eugene? Because like literally every summer by June, I felt like I was just waiting to get out the door because I was dying 
There's right. so much yeah. grass seed flowing around in the air from the grass seed farmers. That's right. So in the valley, are, I was like, this is the worst thing ever. <laughs> I have to explain. So just so you know, I, I come from New Hampshire, the other state without a sales tax, although in New Hampshire, they not only don't have a sales tax, they don't have an income tax. So, you know, very similar, different accent, but very similar sort of independent kind of libertarian we're not out of step with the country. The country's out of step with us, sort of. The, the, the free state, if I'm not mistaken. It is the free state. Live free or die. She flies with her own wings. Very similar. Different parts of the country. But I have to explain to my friends and family back there that what they think is allergies is nothing <laughs> like what we have here. Because other places, 250 parts per million of grass pollen is high. Here, it's like 900, 900 parts per million. But that's because we're the grass seed capital of the world. So the World Cup is played with grass that is grown from grass seed that was that's from Lane and Lane County, right? So um, it's bad. It's over. So no worries. <laughs> there you go. And we don't have smoke right now either, which is which is great. Because this oh, time last year, quite frankly, I wasn't home. We were evacuated. And it was, uh, you know, a lot of my friends and neighbors lost their homes. And we were lucky to have something to come back to. But um, so no smoke, no real pollen, just, you know, living the good life here in Lane County. Good time to be in yeah. Lane County. Uh, so before we before we jump into our like policy politics questions, I wanted to share a short story and see if you I'm sure you do remember this. But so I worked for um, then Majority Leader Hoyle in 2015. And I was thinking, like, what are my most vivid memories of that experience? And the one that came to mind was, do you remember Senate Bill 612? Oh, my God. It is literally one of the most important things I've done in my life, you know, not just in my uh, elected time in elected office, but in my life that actually made a difference. There's as an elected official, you get to do a lot of things, but there aren't a lot of times when you get to make a fundamental difference in people's lives. And Ben was the, the like, without Ben, we wouldn't have, it See, wouldn't have happened. So this is part of the story I want to share, which is, so I was the, I was the point person in Val, this was a Val um, personal priority bill, not a caucus priority bill. So I was the manager for the bill in, in her office. And um, I remember the bill didn't really have a chance of passing at the beginning of the session because it had a price tag on it. So it was going to go to ways and means. And some of the education advocacy groups didn't like it because it was going to be a pretty significant change for some. Well, of the and just to be clear what the bill was, it, it, it provided said that in first grade, every Oregon student should be screened for dyslexia or, um, you know, visual processing disorder, because if you can be screened and that kind of disability can be found in, in first grade or second grade, the likelihood that you're going to graduate is significantly higher. And it's very simple. So it's just asking for a screening. So go ahead, Ben. Yeah. Well, so it was that, but it also like required the Department of Education to provide resources and they had to hire someone. It was like a whole thing. And so it was a great bill and the advocates were very pumped about it. I mean, they were in your office every week, at least throughout the session being like, what's going on? What's happening? And so finally gets scheduled for a public hearing in Senator Roblin's Senate Education Committee. And I do my job as a legislative assistant. I type up your, your remarks and your testimony. I do it in big font. Uh, you go down to the committee. I don't even think they were with you by the time you got to the committee room, but they certainly were not shared. Um, but instead, you actually, you told some very personal stories about, you know, what your, what your experience was in elementary school, being told that you weren't college material, um, up until literally getting to the legislature and you, what you told the committee was when you first started, you felt like you weren't smart enough to be a legislator because you okay. couldn't understand. You're trying to read the first page of this bill and you couldn't get through it. And, um, and then something happened when you were 46, you actually finally figured out that you have a visual processing disorder. Right. So what I well, wanted to you, start- just, Sorry, just to clarify, you figured that out at age 46? 46 wow. or 47, yeah, because I called a friend of mine, Judge Ann Aiken, and I said, because I've been appointed in 2009 and I was trying to read through the bill. And I, it's not that like, I, you know, I have a college degree. I can, I scan things really well, but in a bill, you have to read every single word in a certain way. And when yeah. I came in, I thought that every legislator read every bill. 
So I thought I was supposed to read every bill. There is only one legislator who read every bill, and that is Cliff Bentz. And weirdly, we had we shared a staff person, someone that worked for him and then came and worked for me. And she's like, you two could not be more opposite. But I didn't know. I just like through my whole life made assumptions that other people did things better. And I had this thing where, you know, so I called my friend Ann Aiken and she goes, you need to get tested. So I went to this woman who did testing and she said, so you only see three quarters of the letters. You have a, you know, you have one eye that doesn't track. And so she said, so you scan. So there's part of the test where you read sentences and they, you know, the normal way upside down backwards. I can pretty much read them all, scan them all at the same pace, right? It doesn't matter. Cause when you, you know, when you, whether it's dyslexia or, you know, what I have is very similar to dyslexia, you compensate, right? So I compensate in other ways, but never knew until that moment that that, my skills were different and that I was as smart as everyone else. I didn't, but I, I, I was always hiding something for my entire life until this woman said, wow, you recognize letters at the, at the level of a second grader and you've gotten this far. That's pretty impressive. But had I known that in first grade, things would have been so much easier. I mean, who knows where I would be, but I wouldn't have been able to Pass the bill to this committee about what it meant to be in school. You know, I, I think I was talking about a second grade teacher who put uh, there was a turtle up. Uh, she put a picture of a turtle with my name on it on the wall because I was so slow in getting my math stuff done. Right. Like and uh, so I still remember that to this day. Right. And I'm like 57. So but at that point in time, I, I wasn't going to run for office because I called her and I said, I can't do this because everybody, you know, because I don't belong here. And she said, you do belong there. You just think differently. Your brain works differently. You're, you know, you see things differently and, and that, and that perspective is different. So I went in and we didn't have a chance. We didn't have the votes. Um, and then we got a unanimous vote on the committee, Democrats and Republicans, and most of the committee signed on to <laughs> co-sponsor the bill and we passed it. And now it is law and it's impressive. Unanimous in both the House and the Senate floor as well. So everybody supported it. Um, and I remember one of the advocates uh, who I love came into the office after the bill was passed and was basically like, okay, so this, or after after you've given your testimony, it's basically like, okay, so this is happening now. So let's just like work out the details and figure out how to do okay. this. Um, but the question that goes along with that, that I wanted to ask is, so given this challenging experience you had in the public education, well, it wasn't a public education system, actually. It was a private education system for Catholic at least part school. of it, yeah. Catholic school. Um, does that impact your how you approach your job as an elected official? Um, yes, and in yeah. what ways? Of course. Um, I, I think so. My, my parents sent me to Catholic school. So I'm a, I'm a second generation American. And, um, you know, what my parents wanted was for me to have a better life than they had. So the thought at the time was if I went to a Catholic school, that that was going to be a better education, which it's a really good education if you learn the same way as other people, right? Um, and there's a lot that I benefited from, from that first through eighth grade. Um, but I think that my challenges because I didn't process things the same way as other people. Um, and I, you know, school and getting ahead was never easy. Um, I just had to work harder. And I had in, in high school, and I and also I'll, I'll be, it took me five years to get through high school. In ninth grade, mm -hmm. I just stopped. Ninth and 10th grade, I just thought, you know what? I'm not smart enough. I'm never going to graduate. I was told that I wasn't college material. Um, so I went to public school after that. Um, I, I just stopped trying. And then uh, I met this teacher who was in sort of a, a resource room for, for kids with learn that, that were struggling. And she said, look, you're, you're as smart as any of the other kids because she suggested I take this college prep class. And I said, well, I'm not smart enough. I'm not college material. I said the things that I had heard my whole life from, from teachers who were like, well, you're not doing this the way everyone else is and she said you're plenty smart enough you just have to work harder and that's something I knew how to do I knew how to work hard like I come from a family 
of, um, you know, my father was a firefighter. My grandfather was a laborer, helped start. Uh, he was one of the founding members of the Laborers Union in New York. And so, and my mother worked hard, you know, to get ahead. And so I knew how to work hard and that was something I understood. So I feel like in elected office, I can be that voice for people who don't make it the traditional route, right? Like every single day and every single thing I've done, I think about the fact that no one expected me to graduate from high school. And here I am, the labor commissioner, and I got a bachelor's degree and I had a really great time as an international salesperson, you know, selling bicycles. I've gone all over the world. I've done, you know, I have this amazing family and um, live in Oregon. And so I just, I feel like I have an opportunity to speak up for those people who don't have a voice, who don't think they have a chance. And that's why I love what I do. Um, so I do think it, it makes a difference. It's a different perspective. And I also think my district, I do have to say the first time I met Ben Bowman, I have to tell the story. So I got appointed in 2009 um, to fill Chris Edwards spots. So my district was Junction City, Alvador, Cheshire which are super conservative, parts of West Eugene, so three precincts that are super <laughs> liberal, and then Bethel, which is, and there's the, there's 27 manufactured home parks in that district. So um, Bethel is not a wealthy community, but it's a very tight community and um, blue collar where people just, you know, they want their kids to have a good education. They wanna do better. They want good jobs. They want the government to do its job, but not to be too, you know, invasive. So, you know, it is very much a microcosm of our state. Um, and I had come from an urban background and had never been in a rural area before. So I went out to a bunch of farmers and talked to them and they were great and helping educate me on, you know, what they needed for the district. But it was 2010 and I was running for office and Alex, as you can imagine, 2010 was not a great year for Democrats. <laughs> it, was a, it was a fantastic year for America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, we, we make little jokes sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Um, so I knew the district because I had been working on school bond measures. So I came here and my one of my children has a similar learning disability that I have. And I knew how much I struggled in school. And my thought was, I want to make schools better for my kids and not just my kids, but all the kids. So came here, we came from Wisconsin, where my child had access to occupational therapy three days a week had, you know, in kindergarten, and they said, we want to prep you for school, we came here. And I was told that, um, you know, she didn't have, she, she wasn't quite at the point where she could get services. But if in third grade, she still had trouble reading and writing, they would give her services. Well, what we know is if you can't read in third grade, the likelihood that you're gonna graduate is significantly less. So I started talking to my legislators and working on bond measures and this new group or was organized in our area, Stanford Children. So I worked with Stanford Children, right? Like, so I got involved working in West Eugene and Bethel on school bond measures, right? So I knew people there and I'm knocking on the doors and I thought, I don't think I'm going to win. And none <laughs> of my, like my colleagues were like, we did polling and you're eight points, eight to 12 points up. And I'm like, I don't think that's true because I was knocking on doors and talking to people who had worked in the coach factories, right? Or worked in, in mills that were gone and, and said, I used to be able to make 60, $70,000 a year. I used to have insurance. I used to be able to take care of my family. And like things were really bad and our economy was crashing and people were unhappy. Um, so Ben was an intern on my campaign. So we were in this building that was you know it was just this open building and I was like in this corner small office making phone calls and then going out and knocking on doors and Ben was an intern and I my, my impression I was thinking about this earlier was you were so excited about everything I was and, so um, excited about everything it was a lot of words <laughs> still true podcast format is perfect for me yes it's true but man it didn't matter what needed to be done Ben was like I'll do it and then he would actually do it and he would follow through. So that year, um, it was kind of great because I'd knock on doors and people would say, I'm not voting for an incumbent. And I, I would say, this is my first election. 
And then, you know, I also got to say, well, I'm your representative. So it was kind of a good thing. So there were only two Democrats in swing seats that won that year. And that was myself and Arnie Roblin. And I was the only mm -hmm. new Democrat in a swing seat to win. Um, and I think it was because the messaging that I had was I want to stand up for good schools. I want to, you know, focus on jobs and making sure that people can make a good living because I know what it meant for my family to be able to have a path to the middle class. And that's really what we've lost. And I think that where we are now and what happened in 2010 um, and the divisiveness we have in our country is a loss of the ability for Americans to have a path to the middle class. I mean, we have mm -hmm. more income inequality mm -hmm. than we've had since, you know, right before the depression. So. Yeah, and I think we'll uh, uh, dive into that in just a little bit. I did want to go back to something you said, which I thought was really interesting. You're like, well, part of my district was, you know, really conservative and part of it was really rural and there was farmers and I didn't know anything about farming. So I went up to the farmers and said, you know, how, how, what is farming? What do you do? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that's uh, maybe to you that didn't seem like uh, an important point, but to me that was, I thought that was really interesting because one thing we talk about a lot is kind of the urban rural divide. I think that you started to see kind of fissures of that in 2008 and in 2010, but I mean, that's really escalated and accelerated, I would say today. Uh, but I think that a lot of people, uh, you know, and I, I, I agree with this point to some extent, I think some people push even further is sort of saying that a lot of Democrats, at least, and not just in this state, but across the country, they've really consolidated support around urban communities and really just don't really care about rural voters anymore. Uh, and what I actually think some of the Democrats we'd have on this show, like David McLeod Skinner would agree with that, but I thought sort of that outreach was was interesting you were talking about. Uh, I know but, that- So oh, sorry, I, I, would say, I would say two things. So one really funny story. There is um, one of the farmers that I had reached out to and I would call when I had questions about agriculture because I'm not an expert, he's an expert. Um, and uh, he serves on the school board in Junction. And he was at a Farm Bureau meeting and talked to a friend of mine and he said, gosh, you know, Val's been really good for us. Like she's there whenever we have a question, when we need anything, she's right there. But I, I've never voted for a Democrat. I, I just don't know if I can vote for her, right? Like, so we have it on both sides. But I, I also want to point out, Alex, that previous, like, you know, 30 years ago, maybe a bit longer, but 30 years ago, because as things started to consolidate, we had over 200 swing districts. Right now, we have about 35, two of which are in Oregon. Yep. So mm -hmm. when you don't have a swing district and when you draw maps that pack, right, urban areas and, you know, different communities into, in, into um, you know, partisan areas, both red and blue, then you get people from those districts that have to go into a partisan primary going mm -hmm. all the way to the left, all the way to the right. So I actually think we did better when we had more swing mm -hmm. districts and more people going to Congress that didn't have to play to just one side or the other. Because that, and, and so 2010 specifically changed the map to a point that I think it makes it difficult. So we can talk about the fact that, well, it's the rural, rural urban divide, but let's be perfectly clear we have two different sets of information. And I know, you know, you work for the Trump team. So, you know, Bannon was, a, Steve Bannon was a, was a very big impact on how they message. And, you know, the foundation for shared truth in the media has completely collapsed. And we have to agree on that. So you, like my neighbor- Oh, 100% agree on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. my neighbor's the nicest person in the world. Mm -hmm. And- believes things that I know for a fact are not true, but the information that he gets, and again, Bannon's idea was not put out misinformation, right? And so our media, you know, you want to call it mainstream media or whatever, is set up on the premise that, you know, you have to report facts, you might report them here or there. When I grew up, I'm older than you. So, you know, we would watch Walter Cronkite, right? Like that was the news and you could think this or that, but it, the news was the news. Well, the idea from Bannon was to just put out so much information that people got overloaded and confused and there was misinformation. And 
Um, so my, my neighbor has a completely different sense of what's happening, even though he knows I'm an elected official and we can talk about facts. He believes that like 40% of Americans, 35 to 40%, that the election was stolen, that Joe Biden has Alzheimer's, that- um, Vaccine is, you know, probably- Oh, the vaccine yeah. and that people, I talked to someone two nights ago, I stayed six feet away from him and I had a, a mask, but he said, yeah, I'm not vaccinated because in my church of 5,000 people, I don't know anyone who died. My wife is a nurse and I know five people that died from the vaccine. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and he said, yes. He said, I know five people, one from a blood clot, two from heart attacks, and two from strokes that, that had these within one to three months of getting the vaccine. And I said, well, vaccine reactions happen between 24 and 72 hours. <laughs> and so that's not a thing, but in his mind, that's what he believes. This is not a stupid person. This is a person that has a vastly different set of information. And so we can talk about the rural urban divide. And there is a great book written by actually the lobbyist for the Oregon, um, a rural electric co-ops, Ted Case, and it's called Power Plays. And it talks about how rural electric co-ops influenced presidential elections um, and the winners of the presidential election from Roosevelt to Reagan. Um, and, you know, at that point in time, you could, rural areas could influence how the elections happen. But right now we have polarization and hyper-partisanship. And I think that we would be delusional to think that anybody could go out and say, let's just have a kumbaya because we're, we're talking off of different sets of information in a way that I think is quite dangerous. Yeah, so I, 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 I disagree with your point necessarily though that it was Bannon uh, because I mean, even if you go all the way back to like when George Bush was president, uh, yeah. there's some pretty significant polling that a lot of Democrats thought President Bush was involved in 9-11. So I mean, like, this is a significantly, not longer term in terms of this was happening hundreds of years ago, but I mean, like since the 2000s, totally agree. Information internet. has become, yeah, internet, so, social more media. access to information. Yep. And so, oh, social yep. media too. And we can definitely yep. talk a little bit about that. But I'm, yep. I'm curious from your perspective, uh, because this seems like such, uh, like, uh, like a paradox, actually, in a sense of that as information has been democratized, right? In some ways that like, Anybody can be a reporter. Anybody can put out content. I mean, you can look at Ben, right? Like Ben is not a trained journalist. He's not a professional journalist. And like we put out this publication called The Liftoff and like a lot of interesting and influential people read it. And Ben and I have basically no experience in journalism, but like now because of online tools, right? Like we have access to where people can come and find our information that even I would say 10 years ago would be very difficult. I mean, I guess you could argue there was blocking, but like I guess, you know, what do you kind of make of that, right? That like literally as more information has become and like more people can put out information, like clearly more sort of misinformation. Uh, people are becoming like more siloed where they get information because there's just so much of it of like, uh, like, you know, do you, one, do you kind of agree that that is the problem? And like two, you know, what do you think maybe are some solutions to help kind of combat that? So I wish I had a solution. Uh because I, I think it is, you know, we can talk about foreign enemies all we want, but the one thing that is going to destroy our country from within is um, polarization and misinformation. Mm -hmm. And with the internet and, you know, the um, different sources of information and the lack of ability to know what to fact check, right? The lack of ability to fact check, I mean, families are, are being split. We can talk about QAnon because, you know, whether you're right or left, I don't think anyone here is, I don't know, Alex, are you, <laughs> like, you know, Ben sent me some articles from some websites. <laughs> it's a lot like that, you, you know, that people actually thought Pizzagate was real, that people actually thought uh, that Wayfair was naming their you know, their wardrobes. That was deeply food. suspicious to be fair. Because, well, whatever, maybe bad choice in marketing, but like, um, uh, and lots of, there are lots of examples of bad choices in marketing, but like that they thought people were ordering children that Oprah and the Clintons and Obamas were, you know, pedophiles that were getting whatever from, from, from murdering children. Like, how did we get here and how is it that people I know 
believe some of this stuff that we're splitting families, right? Like families are being split um, because of this misinformation. So we're not talking about shared information and until we can get to that point, and you're right, Steve Bannon didn't start it. Absolutely not. But Steve Bannon took it and moved it to a new level and is quite frankly brilliant at using the the internet and whether it's Breitbart or any of these other. Uh, yeah, well, well, actually, I mean, it's it's really Facebook of what the Trump campaign oh, was able ab- to exploit absolutely. in terms of marketing, because they basically yeah. said we have all these rural voters. Yeah. They're very hard to reach by traditional means, yeah. but they all have Facebook. So now we can <laughs> advertise to them. And I feel like that was kind of like the infancy in terms of not only like political campaigns, but just news in general, in terms of people figured out very quickly, like, you know, holy, this is a really powerful tool that can be, you know, you can really micro-target with this stuff and like really feed specific people information that they want. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know if you've been like in the news recently, there's been some, cra- I'd actually encourage everybody to go look at this in the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal has this like expose from the last week they've been doing called the Facebook files. And there is just some yeah. crazy stuff in there about like yeah. Facebook algorithms, like Instagram yeah. addiction and like young yeah. girls committing suicide at like higher rates and things yeah. like that and becoming more depressed. Like, it's absolutely crazy. But I mean, no, you're totally right that like social media just threw like, I wouldn't even say like gas, they threw like a, a you know, an oil tanker basically on the fire to just blow right. this up. Well, and then you have traditional media that is responding in a way that they repeat the, the lie. And I will just yeah. go to the fact that there are so many people that believe fundamentally, absolutely, that the election was stolen, right? Like let's take Georgia. Georgia is not overseen by Democrats. Um, Brian, I, I'm, I, I know and work with the labor commissioner from Georgia because, um, and let me just take a step back. So as uh, the commissioner of the Bureau for Labor and Industries, we oversee wage and hour enforcement um, in employment law and housing, um, in employment and housing, uh, overseas, uh, or sorry, oversee wage and hour enforcement, oversee civil rights enforcement in employment and housing. We register the apprenticeship programs for the state. And then we have um, a technical assistance division that provides free information for businesses that want to know how to follow the law. Like, how do I hire someone? How do I fire someone? How do I handle pay equity when I have 10 people and they all do the same thing, right? Like, we're there for free information for business. So that's what we do. So I, but I'm an elected official and there's only four labor commissioners in the country that are elected. The rest are appointed. So in 1903, the legislature determined that this office should be accountable to the people of the state and not to another elected official. Um, and this is the only statewide office that is nonpartisan. So anyway, just, just a little Here's what your labor commissioner does because I've done polling and nobody knows, literally nobody knows. Like, there's like, there's like eight of us in the um, more than and that. Two, two of us all... are on this call, so. yeah, and the rest are, are call, right? and the rest are former labor commissioners. So that's exactly right. So oh, and then Jack Roberts, the last Lane County labor commissioner in the '80s, um, made the position, you know, advocated for and had the position made non-partisan. non-partisan. So that that is only fairly recent. So I work with the labor commissioner from Georgia and I reached out to him and I'm like, hey, sorry, buddy, but you know, it's not like you can say that Brian Kemp or um, uh, you know, the Secretary of State Raffensperger are in any way liberal. Liberals, yeah. <laughs> and yet, and yet you have so many Republicans that the believe that that election was stolen to the point that Ravensburger and his staff were getting death threats. This is dangerous. And what happens? What would have happened if the count for the Electoral College had been stopped? What, what the fact that we had an attempted insurrection, whatever you want to think about this, you know, fringe group, that that happened and people don't believe it happened because we don't have a shared source of information. So I think we need to, to preserve our democratic republic, and I won't go on about all of this, we need to figure out how to have a shared, trusted source of information. And I do think it is the responsibility of social media to ensure that what is coming out are, are facts. But when, you know, people are not allowed to be on Twitter or to put out information that's actually factually false, then they say, well, this is censorship. Well, it's not censorship if you're 
you know, lying, but I, I don't know well, what the solution, I would love to hear from both of you, specifically you, Alex, what is the solution to get back to a singular or a, a shared frame of reference for what the truth is? Yeah, when it, uh, and we actually just did an episode with our producer uh, and we, we dove into this topic quite a bit, but I, I actually have a pretty, I say pessimistic outlook on this. Uh, I actually don't even think it's as bad as it will get. Uh, because I think that in terms of, unless there's regulation and there might be regulation, right? Because uh, the most interesting thing when it comes, at least in my mind to big tech is that you have not only Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who are like absolutely ready to just drop the hammer on companies like Facebook and Twitter. You also have Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio who are just as eager uh, to maybe even drop a harder hammer in some circumstances on this. But like, in terms of where, at least from the political lens, and I don't even know as much about the journalist lens, but like this will get, uh, the information people will receive will be even shorter than it is now in the future. Uh, so like, for example, uh, my former boss, he's big GOP consultant, et cetera, et cetera. Like he says very much in the future that like political ads will no longer even be like 30 second things on TV. That will probably last for a while, but we'll even move further to like, here's a four second ad on what Val Hoyle stands for on your Instagram feed. Or like, here's four seconds of why you should oppose Val Hoyle. And like, that's even just kind of dumbing down. And honestly, it sounds like idiocracy. It's like that movie Idiocracy where we're just like dumbing things down. The other, the other thing I wanted to add is like, so to the regulation point, Titus, let's say that they do pass these regulations um, that are basically what, what most people are talking about is targeted specifically at Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. Well, there's mm. something else happening in the background here, which is, uh, conservatives are already sort of imagining what is going to happen and they're building their own platforms. So pretty soon we're not even going to be on the same platforms. We're all going to be on our own specific platforms aligned with our political ideologies, which is going to really make things worse. But, but, but we already are because of the way the algorithms happen. So yeah, even if right. we're on the same platforms, we're getting information, we're getting different information. And so you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren saying that, yeah, big tech does need to be you know, regulated more. But to say that Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio um, want the same thing or even more, what they want is for people to be able to say whatever they want without regulation. Well, well, well no, I, I would disagree with that. Like one of Hawley's big things is about like addiction for children on like things like Instagram and YouTube and stuff. Yeah, like no, like, I, I, I actually agree. think they're and much- the, What is that? The social dilemma that really goes into that quite well. I do yeah. think that, that that piece is important. That like, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And on <laughs> <laughs> So um, uh, be, before before we started recording, Val warned us that the, the, <laughs> the show outline we had constructed was going to quickly go out the window, <laughs> which is already true. Um, but I do think, you know, we've got about, uh, looks like 20 minutes or so left. And I do want to transition um, a little bit to talk about Oregon specifically. Um, and so let, here's the bridge from national to, to local. So Donald Trump was very successful at winning over working class voters in the Midwest in particular, um, or at least more successful than past uh, GOP candidates. Um, and this has not happened at all in Oregon, at least not that I could see. Um, or maybe you disagree. You think that there, there have been working class swings. I guess you'd point to like Absolutely. the coastal, coastal districts. Um, I, I mean, my pre the precinct I live in, but you know, um, I was just at um, a building trades convention and um, these are people who do not tend to vote. Um, you know, they're, they're not from Portland, right? Um, and they tend to vote more conservative, but, you know, like say if you have union members or people that used to work in the mills, or which is what happened with the coast, um, similar to a, a lot of other places, whether it's Michigan and losing the jobs in the auto industry, or it's the coast losing the jobs in the timber industry or fishing, or, you know, Junction City with the manufacturing, with coach manufacturing, um, or in the building trades where you have people that would ordinarily tend to vote Republican and maybe came from Republican families and they're more, they're more rural, but they vote on wages, hours, working conditions, right? Benefits. Um, but, 
when those jobs were gone and they lost that, right? And I personally think it's when we, if you can see when we lost union membership and you have the differentiation between CEOs pay and working people's pay, again, losing that path to the middle class, it really came about that. So I do think that this has happened in Oregon. And I have to say, um, you know, we've moved forward with a false premise, like, because I, I worked in the legislature, I have to say, Alex and Ben can testify to this, I had very good relationship, even though I'm the majority leader, and that is thought of as the most partisan position, right? Like you move forward the agenda of your caucus, right? That was my job. I did it. I did it well. Um, but I had very good relationships with Republicans because um, I did represent a, a swing district and a mixed district. And I felt like they showed up to do the job and represent their, their members, the, their constituents, the same as I did. And so I, I actually had a Thomas Jefferson quote that was on my desk. And it's, um, in matters of style, swim with the current and in matters of substance, stand like a rock. And I think that we just mix up substance and style way too often. So if you're clear about, here are the things I'm gonna do, here are the things that I'm never gonna bend on. And on these things, we can work together and, and you're clear and you're honest and you respect other people. I, I think that that goes a long way, um, but we have a false premise of moderation with the goal of undermining the effectiveness and trust in government. And I think I have seen that over and over again. Like, well, why don't you come to the middle? Like, you know, why are you pushing for this? But I think Oregonians deserve access to public services and those public services need to be treated with transparency and honesty. And when you do that, like I, I will say, I won 17 counties, none of them on the East side, but you know, that's, that's a lot. Liberal counties, conservative counties, um, but I went to John Day after I got elected, I went to the John Day chamber. And I will note that I've spoken in as many rural chambers to as many rural chambers as I have unions, like gone to union membership meetings. So um, I went to John Day and I said, hi, I'm the new labor commissioner. Here's what we do, wanna work with you. And some guy said, we're not used to seeing Westsiders except when they're running for election. And I said, well, I'm a Democrat and you weren't gonna vote for me. So I figured I would come <laughs> after I got elected to see how we could work together. And um, what they said was, you know, we have Westsiders come over and they wanna attract new businesses and companies. What we need is we need training for the people we have here because we have places mm -hmm. that want to hire people we need housing we need you know so we talked about that and one of the first things i did was advocated for a position in eastern oregon for an apprenticeship and business technical assistance rep fought for it again this cycle and we got it funded um it's the first time we've had a presence in eastern oregon in over 20 years for the bureau of labor and industries right do i wow. think that that's going to get me votes no maybe a few <laughs> not a lot but it doesn't matter. Just like in Junction City, you know, my like I was never going to win Junction City, but I worked really hard to represent that community because it was my job. And so I work really hard to try and understand the needs of the entire state. And I think, you know, again, you, you, you say what you're going to do, you do it um, and operate with transparency and honesty. And that's what I think public servants should do. I know I didn't answer your question. I answered. No, 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 no. It was, it was, I wanted you to ask. It was interesting and helps me reframe my question, which is, yeah. it's really about. Um, so Alex has a thesis that he talks about, which is that the Democratic Party is becoming increasingly like it used to be that the rich people voted for Republicans, and the Republican Party was the party of the rich. And Titus believes that there's a shift happening where like all the West Hills are all voting for Democrats and um, and that there's this, some cultural shift happening beneath the surface here, which I'm skeptical. I'm curious, your do, do you think there's a world in which- Do you, do you think only wealthy people live in the West Hills? I mean, like the Koch brothers are not voting for Democrats and they're very wealthy, right? Jeff Bezos. Oh, well, actually, even to be fair with them, they've actually rebranded quite a bit to like become much more moderate in that. But I'll, I'll, I'll reframe well, my point. I would point. say libertarian as opposed to moderate. There's a difference. Uh, fair, fair. Yeah. I would, yeah, I'll, I'll reframe the point a little bit for Ben. So like my thing, and I've actually talked about this quite a bit on the podcast, is like uh, the sort of, uh, and I don't know if West Hills is a great example, but like maybe the suburbs. suburbs like Oswego. Yeah, the LO people, right? Used to sort of be, the country club Republican, actually West Lynn is a great example too. Like the country club Republicans, uh, 
And again, maybe West Lynn was never, uh, like Oswego is never like 90% Republican, 10% Democrat. Maybe someone will fact check me and say like, well, technically in 1930, but like, <laughs> we're just going to leave it at that. Uh, but those areas, like in terms of like the upper middle class in general, uh, have just become much more liberal. Uh, and I don't think that we've just seen that in Oregon, but that's been kind of like across the country trend. But have too. they, Alex, or has the Republican Party shifted so far? So Kerry Timchuk, right? Like his, he was, um, he worked for Gordon Smith, right? Nobody could say Gordon Smith was not a conservative. He was, you know, worked on a number of things, worked, worked for the state, worked closely with Wyden. And, you know, Kerry Timchuk had a fundraiser from Biden, right? This is a Republican who has said, like I have heard so many, like my in-laws, my in-laws, when they immigrated from here, they, they worked for the Republican party in Michigan. They no longer are Republicans because they feel like the party, especially as immigrants, right? They feel like the Republican party has gone so far off the edge, right? So is it that you have wealthy people or people that used to be those country club Republicans coming over to the Democratic Party? Or are they just saying that that party that has supported the insurrection and has said that uh, all the elections are stolen, um, they're not really where I'm at anymore. So I think that is happening. But at the same time, I think the, the, the coalition that Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson had of the poorest people in this country supporting Democrats has also shifted where yeah. those voters are saying the Democratic Party's lost it. They're, they're, they're crazy, they're woke, they're whatever. Um, and so that's the thing that I get hung up on is- So you like, know who you should talk to and she is, she is just, she just bought a house in Oregon and it's Rachel Bittekoffer. Mm. So she did work with the Lincoln Project, worked with Midas Touch, has a strike pack and her- thesis is that it really has come down to the split between college educated voters and non-college educated voters. Mm. And, and yeah, that's, but really that's essentially just another way of saying wealthy people versus <laughs> unwealthy people, right? Like I, 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 to me, it's just crazy. Well, it's, it's not crazy because I, I think that Republicans have basically given wealthy people a free pass forever on some of this stuff, especially when I would say wealthy people who very much don't like the people who actually vote for the Republican party is that right. like people at Nike who make $150,000 a year, like don't really care about economic issues. Like they vote sort of more on cultural issues now, uh, even though it might necessarily be better of them saying, well, you should vote for Alex Titus because Alex Titus wants to cut your taxes. They'll say, well, no, I'm going to vote for Val because Val actually stands for some of these like maybe social choice, or cultural issues, LGBT, which are more important yeah. to me now. Yeah, I think the key is and, and one of the things, like I said, I, I won 17 counties and it's interesting because this is a nonpartisan race. So because I didn't have a D or R after my name, I think I was able now it's clear if you look in the voters pamphlet statement who was supporting me that I'm a Democrat. I've been a Democrat. I've been a Democrat since I you know registered to vote at, at 18. Um, but you can get your message through and a message of standing up for working people, holding bad actors accountable, leveling the play playing field for those employers that follow the rules and expanding apprenticeship. You know what? It is really popular. And when you don't have a letter after your name and that partisan filter, like, cause I won Coos and Curry and Clatsop and Columbia counties, right? Because people there really care about jobs about good paying jobs, about apprenticeship. Also, I would love to talk about apprenticeship as a model for how we can move forward because I think it's really important and I think it gets stigmatized. And this is that, that bridge between people who don't go to college and you know college educated people. What do you mean st stigmatized? Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, sorry, go ahead. ahead. But, but I, didn't wanna, I didn't wanna jump from that one subject but I do wanna just pin, would love to talk about apprenticeship. Let's pivot. So you, so the when you're talking about stigma, it being stigmatized, you mean like, oh, that's for poor people. That's not something. Yeah, it it really is. If you look, and 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 part of this was when we, um, you know, cut funding um, to our schools, and you know, as they cut, one of the first things they cut was shop classes in CTE, and you know, guidance counselors and teachers. You know, there is the premise that if you're smart, you go to college. 
And if you're not good enough to go to college, well, then I guess you could go in the trades. Well, let me tell you something. As a journey line worker, electrical line worker, right? So you will be making six figures easy as you're, with your journey card with zero debt. So, you know, that's a big deal. And you tell me, you know, you go for a liberal arts degree, you've got kids with $100,000 in debt fighting for $15 an hour. How can you tell me that an apprenticeship program is not the path? The other thing is 36% of jobs in Oregon require a college degree, right? Like you don't want your brain surgeon saying, hey, I did this apprenticeship and you know, that was good. Um, um, and you've got 14% of jobs that require a GED or college education and 50% of jobs require some kind of mix. So if you look at an apprenticeship as a triangle, right? With an industry standard, for instance, I'm working with Amazon on a uh, logistics and distribution um, apprenticeship program, a journey card from Amazon with a, a, a certification in logistics and distribution can get you a job anywhere with no college debt. Right, we're doing okay. an apprenticeship program okay. with the cannabis industry, but fundamentally, apprenticeships are seen as a second-rate option to people who can't go to college, and both mm -hmm. with the cost of college education, the way we fund universities, and the workforce needs that aren't being met. I think that apprenticeship can use colleges, right? Can use job training, and then fit workforce needs better, and and that will also make up for all the experiences kids haven't gotten in the pandemic because they haven't been able to show up at school, right? Like, so they don't build those soft skills. Well, so actually I, I super interesting point because I, I feel like so many people, especially more so on the left, really push the higher education route. But you're, I mean, the Wall, uh, I'm hyping the Wall Street Journal up a lot on this podcast, but they also- <laughs> I read it, this, I read it every day. So. <laughs> okay, great. So, you, you, so I imagine you probably read some of the exposés on higher education, uh, which I literally sent so many annoying texts to Ben about this. He probably wants to kill me, but like True. some of that information was legitimately like, like it, it hurt my stomach to learn that there is students who are $350,000 in debt and they're making $40,000 a year out of college. Like that, that physically made me sick. I'm like, where is the GOP? Where are the Dems? Like, why is this sort of happening? But I feel like like, you know, and you know this because there is apprenticeships you can come out of and start making like 60K a year, 70K a year with benefits that are really good jobs with higher earning potential too. Or How do you think we go about- 150,000 or 200,000. But, but here's yeah. the thing, when I went to college, so I went to community college um, for the first two years and it was $367 a semester. And then I went to a private college, Emanuel College in Boston, and it was 76 or 77 hundred dollars that school is now fifty two thousand dollars a year right so the That's difference sorry. was that i was someone who as a working student on pell grants who was the first person in my family to graduate from college that i could afford to go to school without having crippling debt and and the problem is the prices have increased so much right and we don't pay people. We don't pay social workers enough to pay for the college education. So we need to fix the model and the apprenticeship model, which most people only think about it as the trades and the trades have great apprenticeships, thousands of years of experience with their apprenticeship programs. But I think we should look at that model for other things. Yesterday, um, we approved, or was it the day before? I can't remember, it's been a long week. Um, we approved, this week, we approved an apprenticeship program for professional firefighting, for alcohol and drug counselors, for mental health counselors. Mm. Um, we did another one. But the apprenticeship model needs to be destigmatized and utilized so that we don't have kids with crippling debt. And we do have the workforce that business needs. Cause right now they're getting someone with a liberal arts degree, right? Or a high school degree or something, but it doesn't quite fit their needs. So um, we also have a veterans program, sort of a, a take on the helmets to hard hat program in my um, office to help veterans match the skills they had to jobs that are available. Um, we're having, we, we just hired the first DEI um, 
officer within our apprenticeship programs to make sure that people who, so that our workforce is reflective of the communities they live in, because I will just say in the trades, the, the recruitment model has been what we call the FBI model, father, brother, in-law. If your father or brother <laughs> or in-law has been in the trades, you get into the trades. Otherwise, people don't know that literally you can go through an apprenticeship program as a man, as a woman, as someone who identifies as BIPOC, maybe never occurred to you, and may have no college debt and be making six figures. When was the last time you tried to get an electrician or a plumber? They are in uh, high demand, right? I, I just had to, <laughs> my hot water heater in my new house uh, just went out and I, I'm not kidding. So we're recording this on September 17th. I called last week and there were a couple, I called probably 10 or 15 plumbers. Um, some of them were booked out until the end of October, the end of October. And they were like, they were upfront wow. about it. They weren't even like trying to schedule me. They were just like, yeah, I'm probably not gonna be able to help you. I can't, I'm booked out until the end of October. And I'm like... <laughs> Um, but so, so the one piece I wanted to add on this um, before we move on is I actually think that there's there's a lot of K-12 education that needs to be integrated into all of this because part of it is like, what are we inspiring students to imagine for their futures? And for so long, the narrative has been like, if you're not going to college, then you're not meeting your full potential. And that right. has to be shifted really early because if you're waiting till they get to their junior year of high school, I feel like there's, for a lot of students, there's already this like mental block of like, oh, that's that path. And, and, and that's, I was talking to well previous uh, president of OHSU, Joe Robertson, and he said, our problem isn't that we're not getting kids out of high school. It's that we need the kind of math taught in fourth grade mm. that will allow people to become doctors, right? Mm. Like fourth grade is where we need to be working. But the other piece is letting people know that Again, these, these, these opportunities are available, utilizing apprenticeship as a model outside the building and construction trades. And I think, you know, in Oregon, we're, we're really leading. I, I have to give total credit. I have this amazing staff. So my apprenticeship director um, managed the Helmets to Hard Hat program for the 11 state Southeast region for the uh, national um, building trades uh, unions. Uh, so she is a black female Marine Corps veteran mm -hmm. and has come in and I said, I want you to expand apprenticeships inside the trades and make sure we have more diversity and opportunity for people and outside the trades. And she has just really embraced it and it's exciting. Um, so I, again, I think it's been high school or college and then maybe apprenticeships but with measure 98 we have money for career technical education and i know right here in thurston which is the springfield high school i'm closest to um they have you know there's computer sciences there's healthcare, there's you know all kinds of things and again we just have to rethink how we are offering opportunities to fit workforce needs and provide good paying job opportunities good. Great. And then, yeah. And then just the last thing we wanted to ask, because we know that we uh, have to let you go here in just a couple minutes, but uh, so your agency made some headlines over the past few months with allegations of bias. Uh, and we know that with recent reports that just came out, at least from what the Oregonian was saying is that the independent investigator in this uh, essentially is exonerated you from this. And we know that there's still some lawsuits pending, but could you kind of just tell us a little bit about the situation and what happened from your perspective? I can't, um, <laughs> both because there's lawsuits pending. And what I would rather focus on is what, what it means to change culture. So when I came to this agency, it was a third, the size, and, and I am answering your question, Alex, but not exactly. Uh -huh. Um, it was a third the size it was 40 years ago. So Mary Wendy Roberts, right, who left office in, I can't remember, it was like early 80s, maybe 78. Um, she had 260 people and I came in and had 103. We have a significantly larger state, wow. right? And more laws. And so I walked into an agency that really hadn't moved on. So our website was like an example of the worst website in state government. <laughs> like they just didn't pay to upgrade it. So it was like four, four, you know, back from what everyone else had. And it was in eight point print printed at legal law school or graduate school level with PDFs buried. So like we improved the website so that people could, didn't have to sign a wage claim form, right? With a wet signature, which was what was demanded. We stopped charging people for their own records 
by the pound of paper because that was a thing. There was a two page policy on how to eat lunch at your desk and nothing for customer service, right? These were employees <laughs> that you know were, were evaluated by how they checked the boxes, but we really weren't strategic in how we enforced the law. So the, the, the eating, the eating lunch at your desk policy is Alex Titus is like caricature of how all state government works. No, and it was the <laughs> this is going to be a campaign ad now. <laughs> no, and, and let me be clear. That's not my employee's fault. Yeah. You know, and, and it was like, we don't have the resources to help people. So we will, there will, you know, we will not necessarily actively put up barriers, but like they had to pick and choose who they would service. So coming from the private sector, you know, I both have been a union member and worked in the private sector for 25 years. So I come in with both um, perspectives. And um, so I thought the number one thing we need to do is focus on customer service. So if something doesn't get the customer service, we should not be doing it. There was one place in apprenticeship where we found there was something that, that they were doing and it took seven or eight hours a week that had been started eight years ago and it was for an audit that needed to be for three months, but nobody ever stopped it. So they just kept doing it, right? So we process mapped out everything. And I brought in people from outside of state government and also the, I don't know if say bias, but the, the go-to in hiring people in this agency was to hire people from within. Now I've hired some people from within, but what we do is we set up a policy that every single job would be open to the outside. And if somebody from inside wanted to compete for it, they needed to compete outside as well. We started mm -hmm. advertising our jobs outside of from where people just look for state agency jobs, right? Because then you get state agency people with you know, the, the person who was the deputy before my deputy had worked at Boley for 42 years unbelievable work ethic, really smart, really cared about things, but she had never worked at anywhere but Boley. So my wage and hour director came from also the National Building Trade. She was their, their lobbyist. And before that, the AFL-CIO uh, was the lobbyist on Capitol Hill on immigration policy. Her parents were undocumented farm workers. Father became a laborer and their life got better, right? She lived in farm worker housing. So when she looks at the policies, and, and goes to farm worker housing, this is not a foreign concept. When we look at prevailing wage or implementing the new collective bargaining law, right? Like she understands what it means to be on a work site. She knows how to work with the Association of General Contractors because she did that on Capitol Hill and also has been on work sites and with workers. So we are now a national model for outreach to workers, right? Because mm -hmm. Sonia Ramirez, who's my wage and hour director is working with Rutgers, um, to figure out how can we outreach to workers better. But the bottom line is since we've been there, 83% um, of our hires identify as BIPOC. And that is specifically because we've advertised and allowed different people to apply. Now, when you bring people that are different and come from different backgrounds and not from state government and have different cultures, it's not easy, right? And we had to acknowledge that we started a DEI committee. We started more regular and open conversations with our union and the joint labor management committee. I started communicating with my workers. We made sure that the culture in our office meant that you were not allowed to treat people in a way that was inappropriate. So is it easy? And is there going to be bumps as you've seen? Yeah, it's not always easy, but fundamentally, what my staff saw during the pandemic was that we put our workers first, right? Like we only had two VPNs because, and if you wanted a laptop, no, no lie, before we came in, you had to write uh, like an email and a reason for why you could possibly need to take a laptop and work outside the building, which oh. meant that if you're an investigator and you're sitting in an interview room and you, and you had to take notes, you'd have to go back and rewrite those notes as opposed to putting them on a computer. So we completely changed that, transferred people to work at home. One of the first things we asked for was a public records person. So this is all about culture change. I'm not, not answering your question, Alex, but so we asked for a public records person so that one person could do our public records. We stopped charging for records and she has managed to move us from paper. I cannot tell you how much paper we use. They would print out emails and then put them in a file. That's 
Wow. Just ridiculous. So we've actually transferred because we've transferred the culture and we brought new people in. Um, I asked the legislature for money because I feel like I hire good staff, right? Not everyone's a fit and not all of it's easy, but, and it hasn't been easy for my staff. It hasn't been easy for us, but I can say two and a half years later, we're both labor and business really had issues with my agency. I can I, I have support from business and from labor moving forward because they feel like we're operating with customer service. And our focus really has gone to keeping bad actors accountable and focus on those bottom feeders and helping the people that just made little mistakes. Like if you didn't get a paycheck out within the 24 hours because you couldn't find the person, that's one thing. If you pay your white workers $4 more than your non-white workers, actual true example, that's not a mistake. So we should be spending our energy here to level the playing field. And I've talked to the legislature and now we're, we're gonna have 131 people. We're gonna have fair housing people throughout the state, Eastern Oregon, Central Oregon, Southern Oregon here. Um, but the culture inside the agency has changed and fundamentally it's hard. It's hard to deal with the reality. It's hard to get people who haven't dealt with someone from another culture to understand how to do that and to do that in a professional way. And um, yeah, we, we had, um, yeah, we've had issues as you've read about in the paper, but what I can say is when those things came up, we dealt with them openly. And I think my agency is better for it because we had an independent investigation because quite frankly, I didn't know what was true and not true. And I wanted to know what was mm -hmm. true and not true. And I wanna make sure that whatever we're responsible for, that we take care of so that anybody who works in my agency knows if they show up and they do their job and they focus on customer service, we will do our best to make sure that the Bureau of Labor and Industries is a safe and fun and exciting place to work. Also, Bye. we're looking for a communications director. <laughs> you heard it here first. If you want to go be Val's comms director. Well, I think that's a really good place to end it. And we did go a little over time. So we apologize. I'm, I'm for sorry. That. I'm sorry for no, using no, no. Hey, it's, focusing it's, on the, the uh, social media <laughs> dilemma, but it's no, kind we, of a thing. We, we love it. And also we could go on even longer. We, we apologize for taking your time. <laughs> um, but okay, so last question for all of our guests. If someone is interested in the work you're doing, um, we also saw that you told KLCC you were running for re-election. If, if they want to get involved in your campaign, how can yeah. folks be in touch with you? So first of all, if you are an employee and you want to know what your rights are or you have your wages stolen or your rights violated, um, or if you're an employer and you would like to have information about employment law, know that our technical assistance division has a clear firewall to our enforcement division. So if you call and ask for help, we do not transfer that information because I want to help mm. people ask for help. Go to oregon.gov slash If you would like to support me in my next election for labor commissioner, again, best job I've ever had. Um, you can go to Val, uh, you can go to valhoyle.com. Also, I have some videos that I did at the beginning of the pandemic where I didn't know what to do and I wanted new recipes. <laughs> so I interviewed a number of different people and asked them their favorite recipe and then to talk about something. I have everyone from Shelly Bossart um, sharing a, um, it was like some kind of pie crisp uh, recipe <laughs> to like one of the members of the Grand Run uh, uh, Tribal Council talking about elk stew and the story of the pandemic from a, wow. uh, their tribal perspective. It's you know, it was a thing. It's over, but it's <laughs> that, that is awesome. Well, uh, Commissioner Hoyle, thank you once again for joining us. And uh, for our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And uh, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. All right. Thanks, okay. everybody. And thanks, Ben. And thanks for helping me get elected in 2010. <laughs> You're welcome. And I'm sorry. You know what? That made us 30-30 in the House. Without that, it would have shifted all things. So sorry about that, Alex. You have been <laughs> Ben's been blamed for many things. <laughs>